Good morning. It's great to be with you all this morning. What a wonderful worship band that we have here. Um, I'm really um, not only thankful but excited to be here. I was telling my son this week, we went out for pizza Friday night, and I said, Jude, you know, uh, your daddy's going to preach on Sunday. And he said, you tell me that all the time. He's, uh, he's four. And I said, I just want you to be proud of me, son. And he said, I'll be proud of you when you do it. And so, so Jude, here, here goes nothing, man. Uh, if, you, uh, if you're able and willing, please stand with me out of reverence for our text. Our text today is Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You've said truly that he is one and there was no one other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered him wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. God, we thank you. We thank you for how you guide us, how your word speaks to us, and God, the wisdom that you have in ordering our lives so perfectly and ordering them around love, the greatest commandment. God, may today we hear this command, and God, more than that, may we live by it forevermore. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> can be seated. Well, there's a new Mission Impossible movie in theaters. I remember it was a few weeks ago, I was watching a movie with my dad and my brother, and the preview came on, and it was just what you would expect. It's Tom Cruise getting thrown through windows and jumping off stuff, things that no 50-plus-year-old should be doing. And I, I remember I unironically leaned over and whispered to my brother, I said, I will watch as many of those movies as they care to make. I love, I love just the straightforward spy action thriller. And, and also, I, I am reluctant to say, but I am a, a fan of Tom Cruise. <laughs> I, I love to watch Tom Cruise act. He is the most scene-stealing, charismatic. He's charismatic almost to the point of being creepy. Some of you might say, no, it definitely is creepy. <laughs> he, he just owns everything that he's in. And I, I just love watching him act. I think he's got some amazing God-given abilities. Now, a lot of people try to disillusion me about Tom Cruise. And they say, now, don't you know that Tom Cruise jumped on Oprah's couch? And I say, yes, I've seen that. And they say, have you seen that 20-minute video where Tom Cruise rambles about Scientology and says stuff like, you know, when a Scientologist comes on the scene of an accident, we've got to do something because we're the only people that can really help. And I say, yes, yes, I have seen that too. But just like a lot of my friends you know, separate their 
disagreement with Truett Cathy's son about marriage from the fact that Chick-fil-A makes the best chicken sandwiches, so too am I able to <laughs> separate Tom Cruise's God-given acting abilities from the fact that he's in a super nutty cult called Scientology. <laughs> and if you haven't looked into Scientology, you ought to. I mean, you, you know, don't, don't start Googling it now, but if you go home today, Check out the, the wiki page and you'll read about things like Xenu, who came to Earth and brought with him in tow a bunch of humans and pods and they were being carried on uh, spaceships that really looked a lot like American planes and he stacked them around volcanoes and, and then he somewhat savagely detonated a hydrogen bomb uh, in the volcano, but luckily some thetans attached themselves to some of the humans and, and you can hear Tom Cruise kind of allude to some of this stuff if you want to watch that video. But cults are always crazy, right? There's a, there's a cult operating right now in the United States that believes that in John, when John wrote in Revelation that when Jesus comes to reign, he's going to rule the world with a rod of iron, they have convinced themselves or deceived themselves into saying that that rod of iron is an AR-15. Uh, and I, I'm not making this up. Some of you, I saw you, your heads come up and you're thinking, maybe, you know, uh, but it's not. But you can look at their pictures, it's, I mean, striking images of a, of a woman standing in front of this congregation with white gloves holding a gold-plated AR-15. There are elderly people in the congregation with five, five, six rounds, you know, bullets making up a crown on their head. Um, cults are crazy, but, but I think Christians ought to know something about cults. I think that we ought to know something, in, in fact, about the, the so-called great world religions. Because I think that it's worthwhile to just have this information for, for numerous reasons, but it also helps us to better understand our own beliefs. It can serve as kind of like, I've heard this expression before of like the black velvet and the diamond. That contrast is so striking that you can see qualities in the diamond that you wouldn't have noticed otherwise. It's like that joke about the two fish and they're swimming along and one fish says, water's kind of cold today, huh? And the other fish just kind of keep swimming and he's thinking to himself, what's water, right? He doesn't know because it's everything around him. It's all that he's been saturated with and immersed in his whole life. And for those of us that have grown up in church or even just the Bible belt, it can be really hard sometimes to distinguish what's Christianity and what's just the South. Is hospitality Christianity or is that just the South? And what about sweet tea? So the question that we want to answer today is, how does Christianity differ from, I don't know, just Southern culture or from some of the nutty cults out there or from some of the great world religions from the 33 million gods of Hinduism or the five pillars of Islam or the karma cycle of Buddhism? How does it differ? And the answer is a really simple one. The answer is love, great love, and as we shall see, greater love. What is love? I just wanted to see if any dads whispered to their wives, baby, don't hurt me. <laughs> you, you restrained yourselves, so that's good. <laughs> it was a popular song, right? Back in 1993, Hathaway came out with this song, What is Love? Baby, Don't Hurt Me. And it was just one in a whole series of songs that just kind of trivialized love. I mean, pop songs are all about love. Um, in fact, one of the more recent examples, I, I heard a song, I try never to listen to the radio, but I heard a song and it was, it was uh, I'm in love with your body and I retched 
when I heard that. I just thought, that's the worst lyric I've ever heard. And then I found out it was by Ed Sheeran, who's supposed to be a singer-songwriter. And I thought, man, we just, we're just struggling to come up with new material, new things to say about love. In fact, love, if you look at the top 100 pop songs of all time, Billboard did a word cloud where the most frequently used words show up the biggest in this, this picture. Love was the second biggest word, as, as you would expect. You was the first. These were followed closely thereafter by me and tonight. And in fact, you take those four words, me love you tonight, and you've got the makings of a great pop song, right? You throw in some adjectives, and this is how our culture thinks about love. It's got a million connotations, right? Um, none of them complete, few of them accurate. It's been used as just a euphemism for sex. It's been become a decoration that gets hot glued onto every third item at Hobby Lobby. It's been weaponized into political catchphrases like love wins and used in shouting matches. It's been lowered to the status of a mere emotion and something that one falls into and then subsequently out of. It's been stripped entirely of any masculine qualities. It's been a marketing tool in a million capitalistic endeavors. It's been cheaply and nonsensically hedged so that hookups are no big deal, but telling your romantic partner that you love them is some life-changing event that could make or even break the relationship. It's been twisted and redefined and abused so much that maybe Hathaway was on to something. What is love? What role should it play in our lives? Who should exhibit it and to whom and in what ways and how unimportant or important is it and where does it come from and what does it mean to love? What is love? Well, Paul answers that question for us. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not evil or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Paul tells us what love is, like no one else ever has. But what do we do with it? Here we have Jesus in our text today telling us how we ought to love. The Son of God giving us the single most important priority for our lives. You know, it's been said that all Scripture is equally inspired, equally breathed out by God, but not necessarily equally inspiring, right? There's some verses that you don't cross-stitch and hang up in your kitchen. That doesn't mean that God didn't say them. Well, so too, all Scripture is, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. But sometimes we get those subtle, finer nuances, and sometimes it hits us like a bullhorn and, and flashing lights. And that latter type is what we have here today. Jesus is giving us the most important commandment. So first, let's get into the context. Jesus is once again in the public square debating the brightest religious minds of the day. And this was a regular practice for him. Again, it's, it's interesting to think what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't just take advantage of the uh, cognitively weak or the emotionally sensitive and prey upon that. No, he's debating the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious scholars out in public. Um, and they're amazed. It says earlier in Mark, we get this incredible example where they're trying to always entrap Jesus and they say, hey, should we pay taxes, right? His answer could get him in huge trouble. And he calls them famously and says, bring me a coin. Whose image is on this? 
It's Caesar's. And he says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. And they're thinking, oh my goodness, right? We are the image bearers of God. We should render ourselves to God and our, our money to Caesar, right? Which is, which is, in comparison, inconsequential. And it just says they are in awe. Immediately prior to this, right before the scribe approaches, Jesus has just, uh, as the kids say, rather savagely shut down some Sadducees. The Sadducees, you may know, they were the, the Jewish uh, faction that did not believe in the bodily resurrection. Um, and they were trying to entrap Jesus with this weird question about, you know, someone that's, that's you know, are, whose wife are they going to be in the resurrection? Very, um, it's one of those kind of how many angels can dance on the head of a pen type questions. And Jesus completely destroys their argument. And uh, here approaches the scribe. Now, a scribe would be of the Pharisaic faction. Pharisees and Sadducees were no friends of one another. And, and maybe seeing Jesus just completely destroy these Sadducees kind of um, endeared him to this scribe. But of course, scribes were no friends of Jesus either. Uh, they were some considered to be the, the elite Pharisees. They would have been, uh, in many cases, copyists of the Old Testament text. They would have been lawyers, theologians, and teachers. But this account is different. This, this scribe approaches Jesus with sincerity and seemingly even admiration. And this question that he asks isn't some kind of theological trap. It's the biggest question that you could ask. It's the one that any sincere person would want to ask if given the chance to speak to the very Son of God. And what follows is probably familiar to many of you. Jesus' answer, right? Many of us could recite verbatim. But that's not necessarily a good thing. It's not necessarily a good thing. I think about our national anthem. And September 13, 1814, Francis Scott Key watched this bombardment on Fort McHenry. He was helpless to do anything about it. And you can imagine what that would do, those images in your mind, watching you know, your, your friends, your brothers sustaining this British assault. And famously, in this, this passage, he notes how this flag, this defiant flag, this American flag, stands right, for this young rebel country, even, if it's, even as it's being assaulted all through the night from this British bombardment. And it's a beautiful verse, and then he, he ends with this amazing question. Does that banner still wave? Does the banner yet wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave? And that's, that's a deep question. It's a profound question. It's a haunting question. We ought to sincerely ask ourselves that. But instead, right, we just know it. We just maybe sing it or mumble it, and we get a hot dog in one hand, and, and play ball is just seconds away, right? Um, so too can we miss, just like that familiar anthem, we miss the power of it, so too can we miss the power of this passage. So with fresh ears, let's ask Jesus, what is it all about? And his reply is love. Love. Love defines our entire faith. A lot of people think Christianity is about things you aren't supposed to do, that it is about the negatives. Don't do this, don't do this. Don't do this. But this is a positive command. Right? Love is the thing that we are to do. And properly ordered and practiced, love is everything that it means to be a Christian. Properly ordered and practiced. Right? Love is everything that it means to be a Christian. And this can be a little bit difficult to accept, especially for guys. Right? I was um, on vacation last week, and my brother-in-law was asking me what I was teach preaching about. And I said... Uh, love, which is the only way that you can say it, right? It would have been so much more like fun to say like the conquest of Joshua 
um, or like, you know, uh, the judges of the Old Testament or something like that. But I just had to say love. And that's kind of a conversation killer between guys, right? Nothing <laughs> didn't go anywhere after that. Love's got really feminine connotations. If I were to give every one of you, this would be fun. Maybe, at a, maybe in a different time we'll try this. I'll give you guys 100 colored pencils and some cardboard, some, some scratch paper. And I'll say, I want you to stylistically write love. That write love how it ought to be written, right? Write it with all of your artistic abilities. Well, you would, from that box, select the pink colored pencil, right? And if you knew how to write in cursive, you would write it in cursive. And it would have flowing lines, right? It would be script font. Nobody would produce and give back to me love in red and black, like really aggressively scribbled on there with like some kind of like barbed wire surrounding it, right? This is not how we think about love. We don't think about love in any other way but this kind of mushy, gushy way. Guys don't watch love stories. I was trying to think of my, my buddies and I, we would always get together high school and early college, and we would watch the Lord of the Rings movies. And it was just a precious time. I actually ran into my wife there once. With a, she was going with a, another guy that we got. We took care of that really fast. We weren't dating it. <laughs> but um, it was a precious time for me. My friends would be in from town. It was Christmas time. We watched Lord of the Rings. And it was just great. You know, it was a manly macho movie. They're fighting orcs and their swords. And um, we don't watch love stories. I was trying to think, what if I called all those same friends today? And I said, hey, guys. Uh, Y'all want to come over? Have an old school movie night. I'm like, okay, sure, man. And then uh, they sit down. I'm like, it's a surprise. And then all of a sudden on the screen, it pops up the notebook, right? <laughs> Can you imagine? If I just try to play that off, I would say, this is, this is not what we do. But all the, all the best stories are love stories. Love is so much more than our, our cultural caricatures of it. Lord of the Rings is a love story, right? Uh, Sam's platonic love for Frodo. Right? Gandalf's love for the hobbits, the hobbits' love for the Shire, Aragorn's love for his countrymen and what is good. We think about the love shared between the fellowship right? that crosses cultural and racial boundaries. It's all about love. It is our ultimate commandment, whether we are guys or girls. And it is liberating and it is challenging. Augustine actually preached a sermon on love if you know anything, that's, that's always great, right? When you're supposed to preach a sermon on love and Augustine already did it. But listen to what he says. This, is, this is, gets at how liberating it is, this commandment is. Once and for all, I give you this short command. Love and do what you will. If you hold your peace, hold your peace out of love. If you cry, cry out in love. If you correct someone, correct them out of love. If you spare them, spare them out of love. Let the root of love be in you. Nothing can spring from it but good. What a beautiful, liberating command this is. Love. Just love. Love God. Love your neighbor. Love and do what you will. But it's also really challenging. The Bible is pretty frank about the peculiarity of loving a God whom we haven't seen, right? No one has ever seen God. My four-year-old the other, the other day was asking me this question, right? God is invisible, in fact, Jude. And this is an interesting thing. And, you know, I, I admit, Pastor Jeremy asked me a month ago to preach this text, and I remember I was putting my boys to bed, and maybe this is a bad habit, but I, I just, I, sometimes I lay there with them as they fall asleep just to close out that day. And I was thinking about this text, and I was thinking, do I love God? And do I love God enough? And I lay there in my boy's dark bedroom, and you know what I thought about? I thought about my feelings. My feelings. How do I feel, right? In my quote-unquote heart. 
And I don't know if that was advice that I got from Scripture. I think I probably got that advice from Star Wars. Um, if, you've, if you're familiar with Star Wars, um, you'll recognize this. If not, uh, spoiler alert. But Luke, uh, Luke is, is, has a nemesis, and it's Darth Vader. And finally, uh, in, in The Empire Strikes Back, Obi-Wan, Luke's master, has told him some things about Darth Vader, maybe bent the truth a little bit, telling him that Darth Vader killed his father, but we can forgive Obi-Wan for that. He faces off with Darth Vader. Things aren't going so well for Luke. Uh, Darth Vader takes a moment to do some brief monologuing, and he says, hey, Luke, did uh, Obi-Wan ever tell you about your father? And Luke says, yeah, he told me enough. He told me that you killed him. And Darth Vader says, no, I am your father. And Luke is incredulous. He doesn't believe this, right? What, how could you? And But what does Darth Vader do next? Does he say, like, well, check out the results of this DNA test? Or <laughs> let's look at this Panay square, and here's my attributes and your mother's and yours. How else would I know you have an Audi belly button, right? He doesn't say any of that stuff. He says, what? Search your feelings. Search your feelings. You know it to be true. Right? The problem with feelings are... are numerous, right? One of them is that feelings are really, really hard to change, um, which is ironic because they seem to change for no reason at all without our control. If you don't believe me, maybe you've ever at some point in your life experienced depression and someone said to you, why are you depressed, man? Just be happy. Just stop feeling depressed and you just want to lovingly choke them because right? <laughs> it's hard to just snap out of a feeling. You know what's, what's interesting is easier to change actions. It's easier when you're depressed to go outside and stand in the sunlight and reap what benefits that has to offer than it is to just stop feeling depressed. Husbands, you may someday not feel the way you used to feel for your wife. You may not feel the way you did on your wedding day. You may not feel when you lay eyes on her like you did the first time you laid eyes on her. Well, don't sit there and try to change your feelings, change your actions. Love her, serve her, sacrifice for her, put away the dishes every now and then. Thankfully, my feelings for Lara are intact, and so I haven't had to resort to that. <laughs> when that day comes, Lara, you'll know why. <laughs> Give yourself up for her. And, and husbands, as you do this, you may find your feelings changing. You may find that your wife even objectively becomes more lovable, even as you yourself become more lovable. See, love isn't primarily about feelings. It's about action. But it is also more than just doing the right stuff. Pharisees did the right stuff, guys. But you know what Jesus says in Matthew 7? On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I think, Paul, this passage can be really cryptic and very scary for us, right? You're like, gosh, what, is, this, is it just like a flip of the coin whether or not Jesus accepts me or not? Well, listen to what Paul says. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. You see, love acts, but our actions, as Augustine says, they must spring from love. 
It's interesting here to think about all the stuff Jesus doesn't say, right? When he's asked what's the most important thing, what does Jesus not say? He doesn't say, well, the most important thing is is to to be holy or to be full of faith or to know the scriptures. We should do all of those things and be all of those things, but they should be done in love and out of love. Don't read your Bible because you think that's when God will finally accept you. Read your Bible because you love who wrote it, right? Do all these holy things out of love. Paul sets up a hierarchy, actually, in 1 Corinthians 13 with, with faith, hope, and love, and he says love is the best. Love is the greatest. Someday the things that we have faith in we'll, we'll see with our own eyes. Something, someday the things that we hope will come true will come true as Jesus wipes away every tear. Love, though, will endure forever. It is the ultimate enduring virtue. Jesus, you, you may recognize the language that he's using here. This heart, soul, mind, and strength language is actually taken from the Old Testament. It would have been very familiar to the scribe. It's actually called the Shema, which is taken from this Hebrew word Shem, which means hear. And here is the first word of the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Every good Jew would have recited this twice a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And out of the 613 Old Testament commandments, Jesus says clearly this is the foremost. It had been long practiced by even Jews that this was the foremost. This is what it is all about. And before we get into like, well, what does it mean to love God with your heart versus loving him with your mind? The first takeaway that we ought to have is it's the totality It's not like they've strategically left something out here. Everything about you should be devoted to the love of God. Everything, your whole being, your whole person, all that it is to be you should be devoted to the love of God. But they do spread it out, right? In the Shema, in Jesus' words here, he begins, your heart, right? Love God with all of your heart, your affections, your desires. I was talking with somebody recently about Kentucky basketball last year. It was a a sore year for us, off year. We only made it to the Sweet 16, right? So we'll just chalk that one up as a loss. But uh, a lot of people said, you know, these guys, they're young. It didn't seem like their heart was in it. Nobody said these guys don't have talent, right? And bless their heart, you know, they're 18-year-olds. They're coming into all this nuttiness. But people sometimes said, you know, we're down 20 points. They're laughing on the sidelines. We're playing a bad team. Uh, They don't have heart. You know, people say, well, I remember when I played, Right? I played with heart. I didn't have half the talent of these guys, but my heart was in it. I wanted to win. So too are we to point our affections and our heart toward God. Our souls. Our souls. I was speaking with someone recently that had, had just recently become a Christian, and they had been away from Christian fellowship and, and from their home church for a while, and they were expressing to me this, this kind of need for spiritual refreshment. And it was interesting because I had known this person before they became a Christian, and I was thinking to myself, like, this is new for you. This is something that, that a year prior she wouldn't have even been aware of, but now she has a new need. She has something else that needs to be satisfied within her. Her soul was crying out for God. Christian, your soul should never be satisfied apart from God. You should, as David says, you know, be panting after God like a deer pants for the water. Our mind. I was reading today, uh, j- just this morning actually, about uh, it, this was done in 2014, but at the time this was the, the world's fourth largest supercomputer based in Japan. And they mapped out a second's worth of brain activity in 1% of the brain. 
And it took this machine, this supercomputer, the fourth largest supercomputer on the planet at the time, 40 minutes to do that calculation, to map out a second of 1% of the human brain's activity. And what do we do with that mind? We just look at Facebook memes, right? And what a waste that is. Uh, people, our, our mind, 100 billion neurons, 100,000 miles of blood vessels. It's, it is believed that our minds are the single most complex entity in the universe. We can understand quantum physics and rocket science and poetry and some of us even algebra. Our, <laughs> our minds should be leveraged for the love of God. Right? Use them for that purpose so that they, they, they will never reach their potential otherwise. And finally, our strength our power mentally, emotionally. The, 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 I, I, we read all the time and we love these stories, stories about human will, right? What some human was able to do, the will to survive, right? The, the, the will to swim the English Channel or to climb Mount Everest or to beat cancer. And we are amazed. We are sometimes in awe of our own capacity, our own drive. And so too should that drive be leveraged for the love of God. But guys, how do we do this? How do you love God more? What are some practical ways? Well, here's, here's my non-exhaustive list. Recognize who God is. Think about that. Meditate upon that. His power, his creativity, his preeminence, his omnipotence, his glory. Recognize what he's done. God often speaks of himself in terms of his actions. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's to, to make the Israelites go, wow, I remember that. I remember what it was like to see that cloud above us and, and the Red Sea part. Think about what God has done, not only in the Old Testament, but in your life, right? The Bible tells us every good and perfect gift comes from above. I've tried to make an effort now when I look at my children to, to just think, what kind of God, what love he must have for me to have given me these gifts. So just like if you've ever received a really great gift, it's going to forever remind you of the person that gave it to you, right? What a thoughtful gift this was. So too should every gift in your life remind you of the ultimate giver of all good things. Recognize that God has loved you first, even when you should have been beyond love, even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, even when you were sinning with a high hand. God loved you. I grew up singing in, at Waco Baptist Church, oh, how I love Jesus, oh, how I love Jesus, oh, how I love Jesus. Why? Because he first loved me. And that's straight out of the Bible, 1 John 4, 19. Christians, you can pray that God would help you to love him more. I think about the passage where a, a man says in the New Testament, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We can so, so also pray, God, I, I love you, help me to love you more. And I think we're afraid to pray that as if God's going to say like, What? You don't love me enough as it is? Like, like, like as if he's some kind of middle school girlfriend or something. No, God knows. He knows that you don't love him enough. He, he wants to answer that prayer. Pray to him. Be honest with him. Bear your soul to him and say, God, I don't love you enough. Help me to love you more. Finally, I would say recognize your need for God. It's easy to trick ourselves into thinking that we're self-sufficient. You know, the market's doing well. Everything's great. I'm healthy. Maybe some of us are even young. As has been said, there was this old song that they used to say, we're all one phone call away from despair. Uh, C.S. Lewis actually wrote in his book, The Four Loves, he said, we are, uh, the, the, the love with which we approach God most nearly is our need love. 
when we approach him like a child needs its mother. He says that's when we approach God most closely. Listen to his words here. Man approaches God most nearly when he is in one sense least like God. For what can be more unlike than fullness and need, sovereignty and humility, righteousness and penitence, limitless power and a cry for help? Christians, we are to love God, but we are also to love our neighbors. Love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, before we talk about that at all, we have to remember we are to love God first, chiefly, supremely. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 14, 26. This is a pretty provocative passage. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, before your mind runs away with you, does Jesus mean to literally hate your children? That would be an extremely unchristian thing to do. He's using provocative language to say your love for God must surpass even your love for your own life, for your own family. That is normal Christianity. Here's what many of you are going to do. You're going to take these words. It's, it's going to prick the, this, this passage is going to prick your heart, and you're going to you know, go out to eat with your fiancé later, and you're going to say, man, she is just so beautiful. I just can't believe. How did I get this lucky? Right? She's the best. Oh, I need to shut this down. Right? I'm loving her too much. Right? Or you'll look at your, your newborn baby, and you'll say, oh, what a gift. Right? Look at these eyes. Look at this precious little face. Listen to those noises. Ooh, slow down there, Joe, right? Don't love this baby too much. Don't love it more than God. That's not what you should do, okay? Think about husbands and wives. We're called husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There, there is no time in your life where you should ever try to scale back your love for your wife. You are to instead love God more. Love him with a greater love. Our love for God should be first in that it not only precedes, right? God loved you before you, you had a wife or family or child or neighbor, but it also informs and orders our love for others. Think about this, Christian. We, we can't properly understand our love for others apart from God. Let's for a moment take God out of the picture, heaven forbid, and imagine that you are a, a strict naturalist, right? That you believe that life evolved apart from God entirely, through strict evolutionary processes, through survival adaptations. Well, here's how you understand your love. You look at your spouse as a mate through whom you can reproduce and spread your genes. And when you look at that child, that thing that you think you feel for them that you might want to call love is a survival adaptation. It will help to protect them until they reach reproductive maturity and can further spread your genes. What a sad understanding of love that is. The Bible tells Christians how we are to understand love. You love your child not because she has your genes, but because she is made in the image of her creator. You love your husband not because he used to look great in a football uniform, but because you see God making him a little bit more like Christ every day. You love your pastor not because he preaches just the way you like, and always gets you out before lunch, but because God has lovingly appointed him as the watchman over your soul. And you love your enemies, not because you have deceived yourself into thinking that they are not as bad as they actually are, but because God loved you when you were his enemy. Love your neighbor as yourself. We see here, too, that we are to love ourselves to a healthy degree. This isn't a passage, though, about self-love. In fact, 
most of us probably love ourselves enough. Do you drink when you're thirsty? When you're hungry, you probably eat. When you're lonely, you probably socialize, or at least open Facebook. You put on a sweater when you're cold, and you stand up for yourself when you're wronged. And these are important things to do to a certain extent. But it's infinitely more important to do these things for others. Listen to Jesus' words here in Matthew 25, verses 31 and following. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as the shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? The king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. To love God is to love God's people. And to love God's people rightly is to love God. Listen to what Jesus says, right? When he, when, when he stops Saul dead in his tracks on the road to Damascus, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul had never laid a finger on Jesus. He was, he was hurting Jesus' disciples, 1 John 4.20 says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. We're to love God's children, but not just God's children. Neighbor means more than that. Right? Jesus was asked once, who is my neighbor? And he revealed to them through the parable of the Good Samaritan that your neighbors are the people you would least likely expect them to be. Even people you would call your enemies. We are to love our enemies. Think about that. What does that mean? And get rid of the picture of Osama bin Laden that's in your head, right? That's not your enemy. You know who my enemy is? My enemy last week was when my two-year-old was having a tantrum in the front yard of the Airbnb we were staying in. The woman who wasn't in an Airbnb who came out into her own yard to judgmentally stare at my two-year-old child and mother-in-law. Man, that's my enemy. The woman that the next night cut us in line with her three children for ice cream because she knew somebody inside, right? Those were, those were enemy emotions that I was feeling, but I'm not called to, to think negative things about those people or to placate myself by telling myself, I bet they're really miserable and that makes me feel better, right? No, I should hope for the best for them, right? 
Your enemy is, is not probably Osama bin Laden, it's probably your antagonistic coworker or your nosy neighbor or Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, right? Or, or Donald, right? These people are probably your enemies. And the Bible says if you can love them, you are doing well, right? Love your enemies. We're also called to love sojourners in the land. This is a really powerful one because the, the Old Testament is full of these commands to be hospitable to sojourners in the land, people that are just passing through. And you know what's so interesting about that? You'll never see them again, right? You are to love. I think, I think about people that it's easy for me to love in my own life. It's, I, I, I get the privilege of teaching at UK. It's easy for me to love my students most of the time. Right? Because they're, they're young, most of them are optimistic, and, and, and they're, they're polite in many cases, and they're all wearing UK blue. And you know what? Probably in the back of my mind is the fact that if I love them, they're probably going to love me back with nice course evaluations. Right? <laughs> you know who it's hard to love? It's hard to love just a random guy I'm sitting next to in the dentist office. What do I have to gain from that? I'm never going to see him again. Why would I say anything nice to him or put my phone down and ask him about his day or, or try to make his life better in some way. Friends, enemies, neighbors, strangers, all of these people are image bearers. C.S. Lewis writes in The Weight of Glory, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke, work with, marry, snub, and exploit Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. One more important practical note, and we're, we're, we're about to wrap this up, I promise, is don't just love your neighbor in your free time. Love your neighbor in your work. You'll probably have more of the latter in your life than free time anyway. Right? As a student on the factory line in your shift at the hospital, write A papers. Be a productive group member. Make quality products. Provide excellent care. Dorothy Sayer has this, this really provocative quote, and you, you, I don't know if you'll disagree with it fully, but she says, the church's approach to the intelligent, intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sunday. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. When I'm at the hospital with my four-year-old son and he needs stitches in his head, the most loving thing that doctor can do for me and my family is to do it right. That's love, to stitch up his head the way it's supposed to happen. So getting back to our context here, right? Jesus has just answered this scribe perfectly, so much so that he cannot help but to approve of his words. But Jesus wasn't just talk. Jesus was about to show what true love looks like. Great love. Greater love. He would go on to say in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. In fact, during this conversation with this scribe, Jesus was not far from laying down his life for his friends. Going to a cross to take the punishment from God that they deserved. You see, love is most truly and fully expressed in sacrifice. God sacrificed his son for you. Christ sacrificed his life for you. So too are you to sacrifice everything for them and your neighbor. But you'll fail. You'll fail. As resolved as you might think you are now, you'll fail. 
One time, uh, A.W. Tozer, this great pastor and theologian, said the most important thing about us is what we think of when we think of God. And seemingly in response to that, Lewis writes, I read in a periodical the other day that the most fundamental thing about us is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. The reality is, guys, you don't love God enough, but he loves you enough. Be comforted by the words of Paul. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Through whom? Through Christ Jesus. The only person who ever loved God perfectly. The only person who ever fully fulfilled God's plans. Think about how Jesus loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. With his mind, as we see here in this passage, in the public square, high stakes, debating the brightest religious minds of the day. Jesus loved God with his mind. He loved him with his soul. Soon after this, Jesus will be in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying, Father, if it is at all possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Praying so hard that the Bible says that his sweat becomes like drops of blood. The anguish that he felt in his love for God, we can never imagine. Jesus loved God with all of his soul. He loved him with all of his strength. The day after that prayer, Jesus would be carrying his own cross to Golgotha. And the Bible says, until he was able to carry it, No further, crushed under the weight of it. Jesus loved God with every muscle in his body. And he loved him with his heart. A heart that beat every day for God until on that cross it was pierced by a Roman spear. And all the while, what is he praying? Even as it was our sins that held him there, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. In the ultimate act of hate, the fruition of Satan's darkest plans, love prevailed. Love caused that heart to beat again. Love raised that body up from the grave three days later. In love, Christ ascended into heaven and goes now to prepare a place for us where we can bask in his love forever. But what about this scribe? What about him? Here he is. A God-fearing, Bible-believing man with, with, who respects Jesus as a great teacher, perhaps a, even a moral leader. But what does Jesus say? You're so close. You're not far from the kingdom of God. He's done so many things right, but the one thing he lacks is a savior, the person that's standing right there before him. He doesn't yet know that, as the writer of Hebrews would say, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It takes the blood of God's own son, Jesus Christ. This scribe needs a more perfect sacrifice for his sins. He needs this man standing right in front of him. Scholars note that this account is unresolved. I don't really have an ending for you today. We don't know what happened with this scribe. And we're supposed to feel the tension there. What happened? Did he make Jesus the Lord of his life? Did he stay near the kingdom of God or did he become a citizen of it? And we ought to feel that tension. But more so, we should feel the tension in this room. Are we near the kingdom of God or are we citizens of it? 
Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us.